announced mandatory fingerprinting in all shops that sell food. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. The U.S. says it will pursue all options in its fight with the militant group ISIS. U.S. legal authorities claw back about 16.7 billion U.S. dollars from Bank of America on mortgages. Gold falls more than $20. And supply chain firm Lian Fung sees a challenging outlook ahead. Our guests this morning are Vinay Dubé of Delta Airlines, Michael Klebaner from Jones Lang LaSalle, Martin Henneke of the Henley Group, and Danny Hicks of AFP. Martin Henneke is with me in our studios here in Broadcasting House. Martin, good morning. Good morning, Brian. Yeah, what's most on your mind this morning? Well, we have seen the S&P hitting a new um, high, and what's on my mind is that investors who have a large exposure now to U.S. equities and, and European equities, by the way, as well, um, we, we would just say, well, maybe it's time to look at diversifying a bit because the value isn't really that great anymore in the U.S. market now. And locally here in, in Hong Kong, we are trading at half the price earnings ratio of the market in the U.S. We are trading at even real estate investment trusts, equities generally. All is very, very cheap in the local market here. So that's we see as a good opportunity. And there are others. So a lot yeah, of better had, areas in the world. I had a guest, Mark Matthews, on from Julius Baer a couple of days ago saying that he thought China stocks could double in the next two years. Well, that would bring them to the same level as the U.S. Yeah. on a PE basis. Okay, so we'll have lots to talk about this morning, including the Fed uh, tonight. Uh, the Fed Chair Janet Yellen will be speaking. And we'll be getting uh, to some discussion with all of our guests in just a moment. But first, a little tease to get us started. Jim Foley's murder was another tragic demonstration of the ruthless, barbaric ideology of ISIL. That's U.S. Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel. Our objectives remain clear. And limited to protect American citizens and facilities, to provide assistance to Iraqi forces as they confront ISIL, and to join with international partners to address the humanitarian crisis. So a little bit more on that later. And also what might happen if the Federal Reserve starts to talk about raising interest rates? I think the bond market would have a hissy fit. I think the equity market would have a hissy fit. But I can't think of a single sensible corporate decision which would be derailed by the Fed being at 50 or 75 or 100 right. basis points. So he's actually for raising interest rates. That's Michael Schall from Market Field Asset Management. As we mentioned, uh, the Fed chair, Janet Yellen, will be speaking tonight and many will be listening. Here's how the Asian markets are moving now. The Nikkei is up 28 points at 15,614. And in Australia, you've got a slight gain there of just a point or two. In Seoul, the Kospi is up three points, about one-fifth of one percent. Now, I told you that gold suffered uh, quite a bit overnight, down more than $20 an ounce. Gold is now at 1273 and oil is at 102.63, at least for a barrel of Brent crude. In local news, a top Beijing official uh, indicated support that uh, a CE candidate would need to get would be 50 percent or more that in support of the future nominating committee. The chairman of the Basic Law Committee, Li Fei, also ruled out civil nomination, and he said only a patriot could get the top job. More from RTHK's Cecil Wong. 
Li Fei took a tough line throughout a series of three seminars on political reform with Hong Kong politicians in Shenzhen. While he did not explicitly say that the chief executive must have majority support from the nominating committee, he said it will need to exercise its legal right to name CE candidates collectively, and its decisions must reflect its collective will. Civic Party lawmaker Dennis Kwok, who attended the seminar, agreed that Mr. Li is indicating his support for a 50% threshold. Now, to set the bar so high, it means that the restriction... It's unreasonable. It means that a lot of people will be screened out of the election process. And it is unrealistic to expect that Hong Kong people will accept such an election system. Mr. Lee also stressed that Hong Kong's next leader must be a patriot, and the electoral system must not be able to choose anyone who opposes the central government. He said there are people in Hong Kong who do not accept Beijing's right to govern the SAR, and the existence of such a political force here is a big problem. Failure to insist on having a patriot as CE, he said, will be to reject the central government, and this could turn Hong Kong into an independent political entity used to oppose the entire country. Mr. Lee also insisted that there's no standard form of democracy, and universal suffrage must be realized according to the laws of the nation. But Civic Party leader Alan Leung insisted that international standards of democracy should be applied to Hong Kong. Director Lee was of the opinion that there could hardly be any international standards that could be applied in taking forward political reform in Hong Kong. But we disagreed. Mr. Lung added that while an hour-long meeting between 14 pan-democrats and senior mainland officials failed to narrow differences between the two sides, the talks were frank and genuine. We hope that uh, this would start a dialogue that would lead to a political reform proposal that could be acceptable to all and would do good not only for Hong Kong but the country. He said the pan-democrats had called on the Standing Committee of the National People's Congress not to impose tight restrictions on Hong Kong's political reform when it meets to deliberate on the issue next week. Cecil Wong reporting, and we'll have further coverage later in this hour. To finance now, Bank of America has been socked for $16.7 billion. The BBC's Michelle Fleury has more. The agreement involving one of America's biggest banks settles a probe brought by the U.S. Justice Department. It resolves lengthy wrangling over the extent to which Bank of America misled the buyers of its mortgage-backed investments. This is the latest effort by authorities in the U.S. to hold Wall Street accountable for the bad conduct that led to the financial crisis. And the sums involved here dwarf the $13 billion paid by another bank, J.P. Morgan, to resolve a similar matter. Even though the penalty exceeds Bank of America's entire profits last year, this deal brings a measure of closure. Michelle Fleury, the U.S. Justice Department and many attorney generals did not shed a tear for the big bank. I think the financial institutions did what they had to do. They're out to make money. Fair enough. If I buy stock in one of these companies, I want them to try and make money for me. But I I don't want them to engage in the kind of reckless misconduct that brought the economy to its knees. That was the New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman. He spoke right after the U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder. This constitutes the largest civil settlement with a single entity in history addressing conduct uncovered in more than a dozen cases and investigations. And it addresses allegations that Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, and Countrywide each engaged in pervasive schemes to defraud financial institutions and other investors in structured financial products known as Residential Mortgage-Backed Securities, or RMBS. The bank will pay a $9.65 billion cash penalty and will provide $7 billion of homeowner relief. 
As a part of this settlement, Bank of America has acknowledged that in the years leading up to the financial crisis that devastated our economy in 2008, it, Merrill Lynch, and Countrywide sold billions of dollars of RMBS-backed by toxic loans whose quality and level of risk they knowingly misrepresented to investors and to the United States government. U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder. Critics of the deal say that in future, no financial institution will step in to rescue a failing bank, even at the behest of the federal government. But Eric Schneiderman, back to him, the New York Attorney General, he rejects that assertion. They made deals they thought were in their financial interest. When, when J.P. Morgan took over Bear Stearns, they were touting it as one of the great steals of the century. It, it appeared to be a great deal. Same thing with Countrywide and Bank of America. And at the end of the day, these institutions all got bailed out by the federal government. They paid back the money, but there were no strings attached to the bailout, so there was no additional benefit to the American people. On Wall Street, Fed optimism powered markets higher and even Bank of America moved higher as investors showed some relief that uh, the deal had finally been done. The S&P 500 closed at an all-time high and just eight points away from the 2000 level. The index was up 0.3% at 1992. The Dow Jones Industrial Average up 60 points to 17,039. Main Street is really signaling significant strengthening in the U.S. economy in exactly the sectors that you would expect. That's Michael Schall again. Home builders and banks did well. Sales of previously owned homes rose to a 10-month high in the month of July. And the conference board's index of leading indicators increased 0.9% in July as well. Back to Mr. Schall, the guy who's talking about hissy fits. He's all for raising interest rates, even if it leads to a correction. Well, I think, the, you know, if the equity market had, a, had an abrupt, you know, a few day or few week correction and then in a quarter or two's time you find out the corporate earnings are OK, I don't think that's really a problem. I don't think the Fed can micromanage the equity market. The consensus is that Janet Yellen will be duffish in her speech tonight, and that means that she'll be talking about low wages and slack in the labor market. We get Drew Mattis now from UBS with a comment on that. Well, I think politically speaking, what else is she going to say? You know, I have no power. I can't do it. Uh, I, I think from her standpoint, you know, she's not really, it doesn't cost her anything to say that there's a lot of spare capacity and the Fed should keep rates easy mm-hmm. because she knows she's probably not going to hike till mid-2015 anyway. That's when the Fed's been telling us they're going to hike. Mm-hmm. And she can continue to say there's a lot of spare labor capacity. And by the time she gets to mid-2015, there probably won't be any. And then she can justify the rate hike cycle. Just because she's talking dovishly now, doesn't mean that she's pushing back the rate hike cycle. She's trying to explain why policy now is easy. Drew Mattis from UBS. The yield on the 10-year Treasury actually went down a little bit, down to 2.40%, a couple of basis points lower. And the U.S. dollar is trading now at 103.85 yen. That's little change from the New York close, while the euro is at 1.327. So the euro definitely sinking now against the U.S. dollar. The pound, 12 Hong Kong dollars and 84 cents. Back to Martin Henneke, chief economist at the Henley Group. Martin, uh, so a lot of interesting comments there. Um, seems like more and more people are suggesting that the Fed just go ahead and start to uh, talk about higher interest rates and ultimately just go ahead and do it. Yeah, the only problem for the U.S. will be, though, that the sovereign debt hasn't really come down, you know, across all this supposed recovery that we have seen. I mean, the equity market has rallied. Yes, that's that's true. Um, but then sovereign debt hasn't come down. So sovereign debt hasn't been a problem and nobody has been talking about it because interest rates are low. If you put them up, that might come back. 
uh, as is the case in the eurozone and in Japan. In all three, you know, um, areas, you you could see some quite. So, what, what's the what is the um, impact of uh, rates going higher on sovereign debt? Well, the government has to pay interest on the sovereign debt, right? So if, if they increase interest rates, um, what they will have to pay will rise. And now you're coming from quite a low base level. Even I just looked at uh, Italy, you know, the, the, the interest yield on Italian bonds, on 10-year Italian bonds, is almost at its lowest level ever. I mean, even, even with the debt having gone up uh, all the way during the last couple of years and the economy having stalled, now Italy GDP is 9% lower than the pre-crisis peak. Uh, and yet in bond investors have totally ignored that. The yields are at a record low. And despite the record low yields, debt has still been increasing, even though they have to pay almost no interest, which would add to the debt, but it's still increasing. So if the interest rates come up now, that could very easily reignite a, a possible debt crisis. And that's why we one of the reasons why we still hold on to some gold despite you know despite the drop you just mentioned earlier this morning. And yeah. that's another sector apart from some of the emerging markets where we do see good value and a good time to accumulate now. I think a lot of people would be curious um, why, if there is downward pressure on bond yields all over the world, I mean, bond yields are, as you mentioned, very low in Europe, very low in the United States. How could we be talking about um, higher equity prices and also raising interest rates? Just doesn't seem to make sense. Well, it's a, it's a challenge for the governments um, to, to uh, be doing that. But they are saying the economies have recovered um, so far. But we will see. We will see what happens. We will see what happens with uh, government finances. But people say you should raise interest rates to get back more towards normal. But do we really know what normal is? I mean, if you look at uh, interest rates, um, bond yields, and so in other words, market interest rates, they've been having lower highs and lower lows for like 30 years. The tricky Dude, thing that will know, that, happen... That suggests you know, we don't really know what normal you know, is. One, one interesting thing we think might happen, whether or not the policymakers actually want to increase interest rates. Um, uh, for example, in Japan, what you have been seeing is uh, they have got even lower interest rates than, any of, than the US or even the Eurozone countries we just uh, talked about. It's 0.5% on the 10-year Japanese government bonds. And yet inflation has crept up. So it's 1.6% if you add the sales tax... Um, to the inflation number. So the felt inflation, real inflation, including that is 3.6%. Now, the Japanese have been hoarding cash for a long, long time, cash and bonds, because they got burned in equities, got burned in property. Now they slowly are realizing they're losing again by holding all this cash uh, and bonds. So soon they will be selling off Japanese government bonds, which only offer them 0.5%, so negative 3% real interest. And when that happens, the government may be forced to put up rates to keep attracting money. Otherwise, there will be a debt crisis. So that's that's just one example of a very tricky situation. And since I just mentioned Japan just very briefly, we actually think that there are also some opportunities there for investment, Such in particular as? in property, like residential property, for example. The prices on a historic basis are quite low now. And also we think a lot of Japanese are going to be very interested to move some of their cash holdings back into real assets, if only pr to protect from this rising inflationary risks. Okay, so if we could get a little more away from the technical and more to the practical for investors listening to the program, uh, what are some good ideas at the moment, given all this uh, backdrop we've been talking about? 
Well, one thing we mentioned, Chinese equities, whether it's Hong Kong listed China equities or in the mainland, they're trading at quite similar valuation. Real estate investment trusts, also many of them trading at very high discount of over 50% to the market value of the properties they own uh, in, yeah, in Hong Kong. The link read has really spiked here in the last, uh, just struggled in the last day or two, but uh, has spiked over the last two months. Well, I don't want to comment on individual specific reads here, but let me just say you have to, go, have to look very carefully at what the individual, individual individual REITs trade at in terms of price-to-book ratios. There are very, very big differences between them. Some actually trade at a premium, some trade at a 50% discount. And so don't just go out and just buy without sure, looking at the g- numbers. Generally speaking, people might buy utilities or REITs uh, to get a little higher yield and have a little more safety in their portfolio. One thing that's curious is that they've been going up at the same time that the whole market has caught fire. Why? The Sorry, can you say that again? Yeah, yeah. So, so the utilities and the yeah. REITs yeah. have been going up at the same time that but the entire stock market has not, been going up, uh, which is not, but, not always the case. Uh, firstly, we, we haven't really seen the market going up all that much lately. I mean, it has, it has come up a bit over the recent months. Um, if you look back more historically, I mean, we are still quite relatively low. If you compare to the US, we are low. If you look at it on a valuations basis, some of the areas are actually, they have never been as cheap as they are now. I mean, just only moved a little bit out of that, you know, the cheapest prices, so they haven't moved that much. If you look at the REITs also, many of them, particularly ones that are most undervalued, they haven't moved at all over the last month. So, I mean, they're still great bargains. So, again, you have to look at the values. So, do, you know, one, one has got to do a bit of homework. Apart from that, gold, silver, I mentioned, commodities generally have been so weak over the last few years. Everybody hates them now, but we do think they are quite good value. We do also think there may well be a Eurozone crisis coming back soon with all this going on there and then the Russia sanctions on top of it. Japan selected real estate there as well. And then and then Russia itself, by the way, I mean, it's trading at, you know, PE5, that's still like that. Yeah, I mean, how, you know, how low can it go? You know, uh, when you drove uh, go-karts as a kid, they had a governor on the engine. I need a governor on you because you just go rapid fire and people can't keep up. Um, so let's go back to gold. It, it sort of seems to be bottoming or, or at least continuing to sink. Do you think that it is soon to bottom and then we'll embark on another rally? Well, always tough to say in the short term. So, but definitely, I think um, a lot of mining companies have been struggling to make money at these kind of prices. The aging demand is still overall quite strong. Uh, and then um, in, in the equity market, I mean, and, and the sovereign debt issues, uh, we think a lot of people over the last three years um, have thought gold is no longer uh, of any use because there is no more debt problem. Nobody talks about it, but it hasn't declined. And now if they really do increase the interest rate, as I say, many people will suddenly realize, oh, maybe there's still something we haven't really uh, watched out for closely enough. And as you know, in France, uh, Italy, Germany, all these economies have really been weakening while the decline. And they are, you know, the, Germany is going to is the paymaster of the whole eurozone. If Germany now is going to go into recession, the Russian sanctions on top of it, who is going to pay for it all? So the crisis might come back. And so, if only for protection, Just everybody should hold some yeah. gold exposure. Yeah. Okay. As a segue into my next guest, uh, Michael Klebaner from Jones Lang LaSalle, um, how do you feel about property at the moment, both in China and Hong Kong? You, Martin. Well, <laughs> um, I mean, the, the main the main point we, we have been making recently is that if you're looking at the market prices of the physical property, both in China and Hong Kong, they're close to record high still. And, and the yield is very low. 
you're looking at the price to average household income ratio is not very favorable. But then the listed property is the total opposite. It's the biggest discount to the, I mean, if, if you're looking at listed real estate companies, real estate investment trusts, the market value of the assets often is much, much higher than the, the price when you buy the, the listed uh, entity. And it's the biggest discount by far in the entire world that you find here. So we think really that's an arbitrage opportunity between the relatively cheaper listed properties and the physical market. Michael Klebanner from Jones Lang LaSalle is with us in our studios. Michael, good morning. Good morning, Brian. Yeah, so would you pick up on that point made by Mark, Mar- Martin Heineke that uh, there's a difference between the prices and the net asset value? Right. I mean, in terms of the uh, the physical real estate, he's right. We are still relatively close to the all-time highs. Um, and I think, you know, you as we have discussed in the past, the majority of buyers, both in Hong Kong now and in China, are end users. There are people in China anyway, it's 55% are first-time home buyers. So, you know, people are buying for uh, for their own use, and these are long-term uh, decisions. Um, I think it's made without consideration or without much consideration to what the yield on that uh, investment might be. So, so um, do you think then that um, from your view, there's a lack of speculation in the market that the price represents more of a real price? Uh, I don't necessarily think you have to draw that conclusion logically because there is still uh, the extent to which, you know, in, you know, anxiety plays a role in that. You know, if I don't get on the housing ladder now, I may never. So um, people can still act irrationally even if uh, they're buying for their own use. Um, I think it's just a question of what their holding power might be. Um, but I think to Martin's point about the securities, uh, it also reflects the fact that as we look forward, conditions get more challenging. You know, whether it's in Hong Kong where we're worried long, medium term about rising interest rates or in China, um, the challenge of uh, moving the market, the positioning of the market lower to people who make uh, lower incomes and, and building the challenge of building uh, mass market housing. I, I think the, the stocks of the developers reflect the difficulty uh, that is going to be encountered in that process. So would you rather buy the stocks now or physical property? Um, I, I mean, I would say you'd probably better off in the stocks because the valuations are low and it's more liquid. If you buy a real asset, uh, that's a highly illiquid asset. You're going to be in it for a long time. Okay, let me give some numbers to our patient uh, listenership. Home prices in China, new home prices have been falling in most cities uh, measured. Data in July showed that prices in Beijing eased 1% from the prior month. In Shanghai, down 1.2%. Cities are rolling back some of the curbs on lending that were brought into keep the market in check. And people are asking the question now, Michael, whether or not um, the price or the market has kind of hit a tipping point where levels of prices are not really supported by income. Yeah, I think we're seeing a very interesting segmentation between tier one and tier two and tier three. Um, For the most part in tier one cities, developers have been reluctant to discount those projects um, because land is scarce. It's difficult to get access to new projects. So they're preferring to uh, have transaction volumes fall and not doing so much discounting. In tier two cities, Hangzhou, Nanjing, Chengdu, Chongqing, those types of places, uh, we're seeing 
very uh, more aggressive discounting by developers. We've seen that over the last couple of months. The good thing is it's bringing buyers back into the showrooms. So in those tier two cities, transaction volumes month on month have been increasing uh, in, I think, 15 of the 18 cities uh, that we're tracking in tier two. Um, And we're going into September, October, which is a seasonally strong period. We see that as a positive. Tier three is, again, a a bit of a different story. Uh, There, the discounting isn't working. Um, Transaction volumes in many tier three cities uh, are falling, and that is a worry. Um, But I think the dynamics are different. You have, I think, much uh, more difficult uh, circumstances with respect to affordability in those tier three cities. So it's very much the idea that real estate is local, something that we always hung our hat on uh, in the United States and Canada. I I would totally agree with that, yes. But does it seem like it's setting up for the fact that you see transactions dropping um, and prices maybe just edging down a little bit, that you're just getting something that could be considered a healthy correction. There's still a lot of interest and there's not much leverage. Therefore, don't worry yeah. too much. So, I mean, that's how we view what's happening in tier two cities, that uh, this increased activity and, and that transaction volumes are rising with the discounting. We see that as a positive sign of a normal market function, that people are still interested in buying a home for their own use and that the discount is viewed as a buying opportunity rather than a panic or a source of, of problems. Um, so we think that's the normal, you know, sort of healthy functioning of the market. And how how difficult does it get in the tier three cities? Uh, I mean, I think one of the one of the things that uh, has gone on is developers three, four years ago when they moved into those markets were building investment properties for buyers who were uh, investors rather who couldn't purchase in their hometowns in tier one and two cities. So prices were very low. They looked relatively attractive on a value basis um, and prices had gone up. When they stopped going up, those investors' interest went away. Now developers were long projects that frankly weren't suitable for the low Local population. They were too big. They were too expensive. And I think that's why you're seeing prices fall as much as you are in these tier three cities. There is a price that clears the market there, but I think developers are going to lose an awful lot of money in the process. Let's bring it back to Hong Kong. We've seen a little uptick in prices. Do you think there's any danger that the government moves again? Um, not at this point. Um, I mean, especially with the the interest in uh, or the you know expectations now that the fed may be moving sooner rather than later um we certainly would hope the the government uh chooses to bide its time but the i've got some numbers in terms of transaction volumes and the pickup here in hong kong is actually really dramatic if we look at uh primary sales in the last three months so may june and july compared to a year earlier transaction volumes up 182 percent and in the secondary market in the last three months transaction volumes up 38 percent so a really significant uptick from uh, a year ago now obviously a year ago we were right er in the early stages of those spicy measures and um, you know we were at transaction volume levels that were uh, in some cases half of the SARS levels Uh, so we've really rebounded strongly and that rebound in in activity is accelerating Uh, July was stronger than June June stronger than May so things are certainly getting uh, getting more active in Hong Kong uh, definitely skewing towards small unit 
sizes. Uh, so in the private, in the, both the secondary market as well as uh, the primary market, the activity seems to be in uh, in small, lower priced uh, units, which are less affected by the restrictive measures. So is some of the money flooding into Hong Kong that has driven the HKMA to act so many times to protect the Hong Kong dollar from getting even more valuable? Is some of that money finding its way into property? Uh, I mean, that is possible. Um, we don't necessarily think that's the major driver. Um, I mean, I think a lot of those money flows are uh, really a risk on trade, you know, because you certainly see the opposite during the risk off periods. Yeah. Okay, Michael, thank you very much for joining us on Money for Nothing. Michael is the regional director and head of research for Greater China at Jones Lang LaSalle. And Martin Henneke is the chief economist at the Henley Group. Martin, thank you for coming in. We're butting up against the news, so we got to say sayonara. So the markets are higher now. Nikkei's up six points. The ASX 200 up 13. The Kospi in Seoul up nine. And looking at gold now at $1,273 an ounce. Thanks for joining us. The news coming up shortly. Yeah, I'll just tell you about the weather for the moment. Mainly cloudy with some showers expected. Uh, and that's probably going to stay with us uh, for one more day. Over the weekend, though, looks like a little bit nicer picture. Looking for mainly fine conditions and very, very hot. The News with Ben Jay. The U.S. Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel and his Chief of Staff Martin Dempsey have warned that the Islamic State group present a long-term threat greater than any other so far and needed to be defeated in Syria as well as Iraq. From Washington, the BBC's Barbara Plett-Usher has more. General Dempsey said it was possible to contain the Islamic State militants for a time, but they would eventually have to be defeated. That couldn't be done without addressing their base in Syria and without the help of a regional coalition, he said. Neither he nor Secretary Hagel announced new military steps beyond the limited airstrikes authorized by President Obama. But both described the threat in stark language, short-term from Westerners fighting with the Islamists who might return home. Long-term, said Mr. Hagel, Islamic State demonstrated a combination of sophistication, money, resources, and tactical ability beyond any terrorist threat so far seen. We need to prepare for anything, he said. The governor of the U.S. state of Missouri has ordered National Guard troops to withdraw from the town of Ferguson after nearly two weeks of unrest sparked by the police shooting of a black teenager, Michael Brown. Governor Jay Nixon said the soldiers were no longer needed because tensions were easing. The Red Cross says that customs checks have begun on trucks of a Russian convoy carrying aid for civilians in rebel-held eastern Ukraine. The regional head for the Red Cross said the aid delivery could start on Friday. The BBC's Jacques Lemani reports. Several of the convoy's 270 trucks are still in the area between Russian and Ukrainian checkpoints. But it appears that they will soon start moving towards their final destination. The Red Cross say they are satisfied with the cargo information they have received and the security guarantees given for the safe passage of the convoy. The trucks will move under specific instructions. One Russian driver per vehicle with Red Cross personnel escorting. The Red Cross now hope that the warring sides will respect the guarantees so that the operation can move forward. The news from RTHK.
Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis, the program where we look at news, business, and finance. The chairman of the Basic Law Committee, Lee Fay, says he's clearly heard the message from pan-Democrat lawmakers that any form of universal suffrage that doesn't conform to international standards would be a fake democracy. He was speaking after a series of seminars with Hong Kong politicians in Shenzhen. But in his news conference, Mr. Lee accused the pan-Democrats of setting as a benchmark for genuine democracy the issue of whether one of them could run for the top job. He said election rules should not favor anyone. The future election rules will treat everyone equal. They won't be tailor-made for some people. That's why I think some people are drawing a line on whether they can join the CE elections to elaborate what international standards are. That sounds correct, but actually it isn't. And people are easily confused by it. Mr. Lee told the seminar there was no such thing as an international standard for universal suffrage. He also said that the nomination of the chief executive candidate has to reflect the collective will of the nominating committee, as stipulated in the basic law. The Civic Party's Dennis Kwok and local NPC delegate Peter Wong both attended the meetings in Shenzhen yesterday. Our Hugh Chiverton spoke to them and began by asking Mr. Wong for his reaction to what Lee Fei said. We are talking about a democratic way of getting into a consensus in the committee. I think isn't that is really the majority. The minority has got to listen to the majority. And in order to get a really uh, a democratic value of that particular community. Now, if we follow the basic law, the nomination committee is the prescribed organizations that would choose the candidates. Now, there, we are now talking of uh, the representation of the nomination committee. If people is not happy with their representation, I think that is the room where we should be uh, uh, negotiating or discussing and voicing our opinion, instead of really attacking what is non-democratic. I think democracy is based on the minority has got to really respect the majority's uh, decision. And I think this is what is really being highlighted by, 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 by Mr. Lee as well. It, it, it is, in the basic law, the nomination committee is the only organization that would put up the candidates. And how are we going to approach that if we narrow down our discussion, uh, our opinions on, the, on, on this nomination committee? I think we will be getting somewhere instead of uh, talking about the rhetoric. Okay, uh, Dennis Kwok, do, do you agree that the, the, the actually, minority uh, have to give way? I agree with Peter uh, in the sense that the uh, democracy is about minority uh, agreeing with the majority view. Uh, and let's not forget that the nomination committee is the minority and the Hong Kong people is the majority. If um, a candidate is supported by a lot of Hong Kong people, but is screened out by the nomination committee, how can that be democratic? How can that be I don't think, in the basic well, Dennis, we have touched on that subject before. That the nomination committee's role is only there to nominate, not to pre-select candidate. If you say that a candidate has to secure the support of 50% of the nomination committee, you are effectively screening out everyone except perhaps the most pro-establishment candidate that has the express blessing of Beijing. 
Even, no, I think, uh, uh, even yeah. C.Y. Leung only got 389 votes within the election committee or the nomination committee in the last round of elections. So even someone like him wouldn't get uh, 50% of nomination committee support. No, maybe that's a good thing, but um, it is certainly a screening of candidates. Uh, the nomination committee is made up of about uh, 8% of the directly uh, elected uh, 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 constituents, and the rest are indirect. You cannot say that there is no representation. It has always been representing the majority of Hong Kong in the past uh, selection committee. I mean, nobody complained about it. Only it is a combined direct and indirect election. people gets to vote as to who, who, who would be uh, their representative in the nomination committee. How can that be broadly representative? How could that accord with the basic law, Article 45? Well, the, the, all the uh, electors in Hong Kong have an indirect uh, voting right. But why don't, why don't we the give them a direct voting right in the nomination committee? Now, Mr. Lee Fei has also highlighted one very important point, is the national security, especially at the current time. Now, especially there's an exposure of a lot of the pan-democratic is getting money from from from, no, from, you keep changing uh, from foreign power. We're talking about the article national security. of the basic law. It doesn't mention national security. And we are talking of basic law as a whole, not just one article. of the basic law. Can you not no, change topic and talk about national security because it's not mentioned in the basic law? I'm uh, sorry, Dennis. We are talking of 1,200, maybe 1,200 uh, uh, electors and constituents in the, in the nomination committee. My friend, America, they only have about 500 something on. We're talking about Hong Kong. You don't comment about press with uh, the system in America or in Britain. We're talking. You about are talking of international law. standards. Please tell me what do you mean by international standard? Uh, without of universal some restriction of the right to stand for election. That is that simple. Read the Hong Kong Bar Association's paper issued in April. It spells out precisely what is meant by international standard. And in simple terms, it means that a person's right to stand for election should not be unreasonably restricted. It is that simple what is it that you don't understand well the simple the, the simplest thing is that you don't have a basis of the rights of the states now it is the national security i think is one of the prerequisites so you change the subject again international about the basic law, any right? national well the basic law is the chinese part of the chinese constitution my friend even most democrats are people who are love are patriotic even he accepted that yesterday. So why are you talking about national security when it's not even mentioned in the basic law? Should we go back to the basic law and talk about what it actually meant? The Civic Party's Dennis Kwok and also local NPC delegate Peter Wong there in heavy discussion earlier this morning on Hong Kong Today with Hugh Chiverton. The time is now 20 minutes before 9 o'clock. We'll have more news coverage uh, coming up. Some of the stories that we have been following this morning and, of course, that you heard in our news as well, the U.S. saying that it will pursue all options in its fight with the militant group ISIS. Also, the American legal authorities clawed back 16.7 billion U.S. dollars from Bank of America – 
on mortgages. Gold was down more than $20 an ounce. And we'll also have a little bit more on Lian Fung, as it said that it sees a challenging outlook ahead with uh, slow growth in Europe and also in the United States. Guests coming up in this half hour, Vinay Dubey, Senior Vice President for the Asia Pacific at Delta Airlines. We'll be speaking with uh, Mr. Dubey in just a moment or two. And later, Danny Hicks, Editor of Sports Direct at AFP. And we'll be looking at the business of sport. Uh, pardon me. So let's just get a quick check of the markets here. We do see green numbers this morning. Uh, it's mostly a bullish uh, tint on markets in the Asia Pacific. Looking at currencies, the dollar yen 103.90, so little change there. The euro continues to weaken against the dollar 132.76, the renminbi 616, and the Australian dollar 93. U.S. cents. Well, Asia's traffic industry, or airline industry rather, has been flying quite high in terms of passenger traffic, but in terms of cargo traffic, a slightly different story. We're joined in our studios now by, as mentioned, Vinay Dubey, Senior Vice President for Delta Airlines in the Asia Pacific. Mr. Dubey, good morning. Good morning. Good to have you on the the program. Um, First of all, are we seeing for Delta a genuine pickup in in traffic in the Asia-Pacific? Yeah, I think uh, for Delta, absolutely. So in general, air traffic demand is reasonably closely correlated to macroeconomic indicators like GDP growth. And, uh, of course, we're sitting here in, in Asia with uh, strong, vibrant economies. And uh, and clearly our traffic is growing by at least the 4 to 7% uh, rate when it comes to most Asia-Pacific economies. And I'm leaving Japan out where the, the rate of growth is a little slower. And we're certainly seeing that in our numbers. And what about cargo? Uh, cargo is is not quite uh, quite there as yet. Uh, we're seeing cargo uh, at about flat to a very very slight uptick, probably in the in the one to two point range. And I know you focus more on the Asia Pacific, but generally speaking, for Delta, how is global air traffic? Global air traffic is is very very strong. So we're uh, we just posted our second quarter results, and uh, and Delta Airlines posted for the second quarter alone 1.4 billion dollars of pre tax earnings on an adjusted basis, which, uh, you know, quite frankly, in past years, for a full year, that would be a good number. But uh, but we've posted that for the second quarter. And that's on the backs of very, very strong, uh, both uh, corporate and leisure demand. Your stock price is up uh, something like 100% over the past year. It's been very strong performance. Is that because it was coming off a very low base or because uh, oil prices and jet fuel prices are sinking at a time when passenger traffic is coming back? Uh, I think, Brian, it's just the, the fundamentals of the business has changed. So for people to, to begin to start investing in the airline business as they're doing today, which is what is, uh, which is, what is boosting our stock price, they want to make sure that the airline fundamentals are, are strong, that we can put out good operating uh, margins and operating profits, free cash flow uh, on a year-in, year-out basis. And historically, we were a very, very cyclical business. And what we've shown over the last five years is that we have the capability to put out profit on a year-in, year-out basis. Uh, And I think that's really what's causing the uptick. In fact, if you look at uh, Delta Airlines uh, valuations today, we think when you compare us to the S&P transport industrials who are putting out similar types of uh, financial results and whose balance sheets are uh, at similar levels, we think we've still got a lot of upside uh, to go. Do you think that it, it's almost a proxy for growth coming back strongly? We talk about how, how challenged Europe is now and the U.S. is kind of muddling through. But in what you're seeing with your own business, is that a good sign for the future? It's a very good sign for the future, but I'd say it's it's less about the story of growth when you look at the global industry. It's really about our ability to 
to make money both in 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 a growth market as well as uh, in a downturn. So, so this goes uh, back to the fundamental changes that you're talking about. What are the most fundamental changes that seem to be supporting you? I think at the at the very fundamental level in the U.S., we've had consolidation, and that's allowed okay. us to really uh, tap into some of the economies of scale. And the airline business is a is a business of scale, quite fundamentally. And what we've been able to do is, as a result of the scale, get our cost structures in line. And this was not something that uh, that we were able to do five, seven, ten years ago. Uh, but really, this is uh, post-2006, 2007, that we've been able to get our cost structure in line uh, and is, as well uh, as get some capacity discipline in the market. So when you flood the market with capacity, no matter what your cost structure is, you're going to have fares that are at uh, unsustainable levels. And that's fundamentally uh, what's changed. I think the third part also is the access to capital. Um, you just don't have the access to capital today that you had several years ago. Funny thing, banks actually want their money back right now when, when they lend out. And, and so you aren't getting airlines in the U.S. popping out you know, a dime a dozen uh, like you did in the early part of the 2000s. How much of a challenge are you seeing in the Asia-Pacific from the budget airlines? Um, well, it's a, the budget airlines are really a tale of two cities. For Delta in particular, uh, they don't have a major effect because Delta's business in Asia-Pacific is really a long-haul business. We're taking people from uh, and to the U.S. from the Asia-Pacific countries, and most budget carriers just don't, uh, don't compete in that space. Um, so the budget carriers really is much more a story about the Asia-Pacific airlines, and I think uh, it's going to be a real challenge for them. Mm. So for Singapore and Cathay Pacific and others, uh, and what about Malaysian Airlines, the twin tragedies? Uh, is that having much of an impact on Delta? Well, I mean, clearly, whenever you have anything as unfortunate and tragic as uh, Malaysian Airlines, it affects it affects the, the airline community as a whole. So uh, it's just a very, very sad event. Um, in terms of our numbers, no, Brian. We're not, uh, we're not seeing um, book away. We're not seeing a slowdown in, in, in general sort of aviation demand for Delta. And it is quite interesting with all of the geopolitical tensions we have that the oil price has, has come down as much, and that uh, must indirectly affect uh, jet fuel prices. Uh, and you didn't mention too much about that. Uh, how much of a boon for your business is the fact that those prices are softer? Oh, well, uh, fuel uh, today is between you know, 35 and 40 percent of our overall cost base. So uh, you know, a, a dollar uh, in jet fuel or let's say one cent uh, in in processed uh, jet fuel equates to roughly forty million dollars for us. So it's a it's a big deal when fuel prices come down. But one of the things that Delta has done is that uh, I don't know you, you probably remember we've bought a refinery, and we're not only able to access uh, sort of the the general decline in jet fuel, but as a result of our refinery, Delta is the only carrier that can really take advantage of the U.S. Uh, boom in in domestic uh, uh, supply, and that's what we're doing, and that's giving us a distinct advantage on our fuel bill that other carriers aren't able to uh, to take advantage. So does of. that mean you don't have to hedge as much? Well, it it means that uh, that as a combination of our hedging as well as some of the benefits that we're getting from our trainer refinery, our fuel bill is between ten and fifteen cents a gallon lower than the average fuel price um, U.S. domestically. And that translates into about a half a billion dollar advantage that we get in cost compared to other airlines. Okay, Mr. Dubé, thank you very much for joining us on Money for Nothing. It's a pleasure. Vinay Dubé, Senior Vice President, Asia Pacific or for the Asia Pacific with Delta Airlines, live here on Money for Nothing. The time now is 8.49.
Yeah, time to rock and roll with Chris Oliver, who joins us now in our studios. Chris, what do you have for us this morning? Uh, well, good morning, Brian. One of the big stories of late is China's antitrust drive and the impact that's having on foreign multinationals. Uh, antitrust, as you may know, essentially means it's the set of laws that help to ensure fair competition by companies. Uh, you know, big headline that uh, made world attention earlier this week. Uh, Chinese regulators found 12 Japanese auto parts companies guilty of fixing prices on components supplied to Chinese factories. So these were parts that were going into brands such as Toyota, Honda, Nissan, and others. Now, it's important to note that, that Toyota is not an issue here. These, these are sub-companies that supply the parts to these uh, uh, manufacturers in China. Uh, in, in, at the end of the day, the companies were fined around $200 million dollars. The penalties, however, were levied at a time when relations between Tokyo and Beijing have been strained. Other foreign automakers, as you know, have, have been fined recently as well. Among them, German automaker Mercedes-Benz, it uh, was a huge story earlier this month, was found to be charging excessive prices for parts and maintenance in some dealerships near Shanghai. So Mercedes has responded by saying that they're actually going to cut prices on replacement parts by about 15%. But what's interesting here is that the European Commission does not actually plan to retaliate against the antitrust probes yet. At least this is a story that's out in the S&P and other news agencies in the last day or so. Uh, they say very clearly that they see no sign that the anti antitrust powers are being abused. But one outcome that uh, I think is to watch for investors is that the Chinese automakers have been outperforming since the, auto, uh, the antitrust campaign kicked in. So that started, it started in July, and since that time, Great Wall Motors is up uh, nearly about 10%. Geely uh, and Brilliance China, Brilliance China are also up strongly, but uh, they may have sold off over the, the past day or two. Um, that compares to BMW and Audi's shares in Germany, which are both down for uh, since the six weeks since the campaign started. Mm. Very interesting. Okay, thank you very much, Chris. Chris Oliver, the producer of Money for Nothing. See the Well, as you know, if you listen to this program, every couple of weeks on a Friday, we look at the money in sport and the business side of the massive sporting industry. And one of the stories that caught our eye, Barcelona appealing to the Court of Arbitration now for sport after FIFA said that it would not be able to sign any players in the next two transfer windows. FIFA said on Wednesday that it had rejected Barcelona's appeal against the sanction imposed back in April. This sanction was over rules around the transfer of under-18 players. Players. To help explain it to us is Danny Hicks from AFP Sports Direct. Danny, good morning. Good morning, Brian. Yeah, so this will no like, uh, no doubt set Barcelona back, will it not? Well, you would think so, and uh, you would like to think that any punishment for, for breaking rules, such as uh, transfer of uh, underage players, basically, uh, 10 players under the age of 18 that they transferred internationally against the FIFA rules, uh, would have some uh, effect on them. But uh, the point is they are still able to transfer at the moment during the current window, which shuts uh, on September the 1st, and they've been investing heavily. We all know about Luis Suarez going from uh, Liverpool, $128 million, so something in that region. They've spent about $220 million already. They've offloaded a couple of players, big names such as Fabregas going to Chelsea and, uh, and Alexis Sanchez to Arsenal. Um, so they seem to have 
you know, they knew this was coming, and they're doing their business now before uh, before the shutters come down on them. So uh, this is because the two-window embargo was on hold while these um, uh, while exactly, the, uh, and there's the been appeal a lot, was being heard, and not for the first time. There's been criticism of FIFA in this in in their timing of uh, actually imposing the ban, which was towards the end of uh, last season, meant that necessarily because of the appeals process, Barcelona would appeal straight away. During the appeal, the ban would be suspended, which would enable them to transfer during this window. And there's been heavy criticism about FIFA, who've known about this for a long time, that they didn't, uh, if you like, go for Barcelona earlier, which would have meant they couldn't transfer during this summer window. And this summer window, in a World Cup year, is always one of the big ones for player movements. But Barcelona have been free to trade in it. They've strengthened their squad. And although they won't be able to transfer anybody uh, after September the 1st until January 2016, it seems like they've, uh, they've got all the dominoes in place. Under what conditions can players under the age of 18 play? Well, there, there, there are a few exceptions to the rule. I uh, should explain, I think this is a very good rule because it stops clubs, big clubs such as Barcelona or, or any of the big clubs in Europe, you know, trawling around South America, snapping up young talent, uh, bringing them to their academies, and then uh, maybe later on when they become established first-team players, reaping huge uh, rewards in terms of transfer fees. So it's a good thing. But I mean, if their parents move there, if their parents, wouldn't that be if, okay? If parents move to the country in which the club is in for non-footballing reasons, i.e., you know, dad oh. gets a job, dad gets a job in Spain, then the player, obviously, under 18, would move with his family and uh, could, could sign for a local club. Um, that's only right. I mean, if my kids were great at football, uh, I'd hate to think that they couldn't sign for, you know, Kitchy or someone locally because we're from the UK and I've, I've moved here for non-footballing reasons, obviously. Um, also, if a, if a player happens uh, to live within uh, 100 kilometres of the club, so if you're just across the border in another country, say, say you know, you, an Argentinian player lives near the Brazil border, could sign a, a young player, could be signed by a, by a club within 100 kilometres. And, of course, within the European economic area, there is uh, no restriction on, on movement of, of labour or players or anything. So you, within Europe players can move about at that age but the restrictions are quite tight okay so if we go back to the original um look at barcelona and whether or not they can survive mm. uh, being shut out of two windows it seems like you're saying yes they can well they've obviously rebuilt they had a bad season last season by their standards they didn't win the spanish league they didn't do well in the champions league um they've obviously uh, they knew this was coming as i say and um the only thing I could think of that might hurt them is they could fall foul of the, the FIFA fair play rules on, where you've got to balance the books on transfers if they can't offload a few more players before the window shuts because they have spelt, spent big. But as we found, you know, these fair play, financial fair play rules, are, clubs are finding ways around them. Manchester City and Paris Saint-Germain earlier this year fined heavily and had squad restrictions. But Manchester City have uh, just signed on loan Frank Lampard from, from their club in New York, which they own. And, and there's been criticism now that clubs are, are basically buying up clubs in other jurisdictions outside UEFA. They will, they will get those clubs to buy their players and then they will loan them back to the parent club in, in Europe and therefore get around the, uh, the, the, the financial fair play rules. Uh, so there's, uh, you know, these rules are all got good principles behind them, but uh, if there's a loophole, 
Big clubs will exploit them. I suppose some people might argue that it is a bit judgmental that if the parents move for non-footballing reasons, Mm. it's okay. Mm. But, um, you know, when you see the great numbers of people that, say, move to the United States to provide a golfing or a tennis environment for their kids, um, is it, uh, you know, a little bit judgmental that even if parents moved for footballing reasons that somehow FIFA says this is not cool? Well, I think the footballing reasons is, is the key because, you know, what's to stop a club like Barcelona offering... Uh, Offering parents parents. a house, a car, Hmm. a a job, uh, a a huge sum of money from a poor area of Brazil to come and move to Spain. Uh, That would be a footballing reason. Ostensibly, you know, the system is different in the States, as we know. Moving there for a college education, uh, maybe on a sports scholarship, is is something different entirely. It's not a professional... uh, It may lead to a professional sports career, but it's not the same as being snapped up by a huge professional club for their academy in Spain when you live in Brazil or Argentina or somewhere else. Okay, Danny, thanks very much for joining us here on Money for Nothing. That is Danny Hicks with AFP and Sports Direct, who is our regular sports correspondent. The time is now three minutes before 9 o'clock. Well, two days after details emerged of the brutal killing of the American journalist James Foley, the United States has made it clear that it won't be deterred from its military operations against the jihadist group Islamic State, despite a threat to kill a second American that has been captive in revenge for any continued attacks. The U.S. launched several more airstrikes against the militants. Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel said the United States was pursuing a long-term strategy because the group, also known as ISIL, represents a long-term threat. ISIL is as sophisticated and well-funded as any uh, group that we have seen. They're beyond just a terrorist group. They marry ideology, a sophistication of of strategic and uh, tactical military prowess, they are tremendously well-funded. Oh, this is beyond anything that, that we've seen. So we must prepare for, for everything. The Defense Secretary, Chuck Hagel. Well, just in some other um, news for you, um, the Privacy Commissioner, Alan Chung, has expressed his surprise at receiving a letter from the government complaining about a survey on telemarketing calls that the watchdog released earlier this month. Mr. Chung had urged the government to set up a do-not-call register to allow people to block cold calls from telemarketers based on the results. But the Commerce and Economic Development Bureau responded by complaining that it was kept in the dark, and it questioned the validity of the survey. Survey's results. Mr. Chung also said that the Bureau felt it wasn't obliged to take the proposal forward and that it should be a matter for the Constitutional Affairs Bureau instead. Well, just closing out the program now with a look at the weather, um, mainly fine apart from, well, actually today's forecast is is fine conditions along with some clouds and a few showers in the morning. But for the weekend, we are seeing mostly mainly fine conditions expected and just a chance of isolated showers. Maximum temperatures 32 to 34 degrees. Thanks very much for joining us on the program. The news coming up shortly after that morning brew with Phil Whelan. And a very good weekend to you. We'll see you next morning, next Monday morning here on Money for Nothing.